Good morning, everyone. Yes, as uh, Kevin reassured you, uh, you did not read your bulletins wrong. They are printed correctly. Um, I am indeed not Pastor Scott Davis. Um, But as Kevin uh, said just a few minutes ago, for those of you who may not recognize me, my name is Graham Petrie. Um, I'm a senior in high school. I go to J.M. Robinson, and um, I've been actively involved in our church's youth program since sixth grade and have been attending Pitts since I was two years old, so I'm no stranger to Pitts Baptist Church. But um, this is my first time giving a full-length sermon, so I'm going to ask all of you to bear with me, so hopefully this can be a learning experience for all of us and not just for me. So, um, but however, the benefit of this being my first sermon for all of you is that uh, I am not nearly as well-learned or experienced as our dear Pastor Scott is, so therefore I will not be able to preach nearly as long as he does. So, (laughs) amen, right? Yeah. (laughs) So yes, uh, you can be refreshed in that, but no, I'm only kidding. We're very blessed as a church to have such a man of God as Pastor Scott. And we also have a great youth program, don't we? Um, I mean, yeah, you can clap for that. That's awesome. But yes, every aspect of this service this morning has been planned and run by youth and hasn't been awesome. Kevin Seeger did a magnificent job of coming in the church's infancy and building a strong foundation for our youth program. And Kevin Knight has come and just added to that foundation and has made the youth group of Pitts Baptist Church a place where students can come and really develop their faith and their relationship with God. I mean, I think sometimes as a church we even gloss over how blessed we are to have such a strong youth program. I go to school and I'll ask some kids that attend local churches in the area about, uh, you know, their youth programs at their churches. And they'll tell me, they'll be like, oh yeah, you know, I go to youth sometimes and um, we get like 10 people sometimes, I guess. And, and we're, as we're at our church, I mean, we have a committed core of students that are here almost every single time the doors are open. And we average, I think, like 30 to 40 on our Wednesday night services and even more than that on our Sunday night services. So we really do have some exciting things going on in our youth program, and we are very blessed as a church to have um, such a strong program where our students can come and grow and develop in their faith. But um, as an 18-year-old speaking to all of you this morning, I hope to provide a little different um, perspective than you're used to hearing on a Sunday morning. And it's hopefully a perspective that will excite and energize you. This morning, I bring to you a message and a challenge that God has put on my heart. But before I start, I want to pray and ask God to bless the time that we have together. So let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I just, I I come to you and I thank you for for Sunday, Lord. I thank you for giving us this church to come and uh, meet together in, Lord. And uh, I thank you for for creating the church so that um, we can have uh, communion and fellowship with a body of believers in your name, Lord. Um, Father, I pray this morning that you would excite us all about church, Lord, that we would just not just gloss over it and make it routine, Lord. And Father, I pray that you would be with me and that you would, uh, I would, you would just hide me behind you and that you would speak this morning, Lord. I pray that not a word would come out of my mouth that doesn't come straight from you, Father. And I ask all these things in your name. Amen. 
All right, so as I was saying earlier, uh, we teenagers are supposed to be, you know, like fun, energetic, and exciting people, right? Well, this morning I want to try and transfer some of that energy and excitement to all of you. You see, in this day and age, especially in our Bible Belt area of the country, I feel that church has become very institutionalized. And I'm not by any means saying that this is true of our church. In fact, I believe that our church is alive and well in God's spirit. But I think people are very susceptible to becoming ensnared and entangled in the ceremonial aspects of church sometimes. Like, think about it. Every Sunday morning, we all probably wake up around the same time. We get up, we get dressed, put on our Sunday best, and then we come to church. And we either go to Sunday school first hour or worship first hour, depending on which schedule we abide by. And whenever we do come to worship service, we, um, we, we stand up, we sing the songs together, we sit down and we listen to the message, and then once everything's all said and done with, we get up and then we drive home. Hopefully you can see from all that, that if our hearts aren't in the right place, it's very easy to go right through the motions of church and miss the entire point. So that's why this morning, as a youth, I want to get back down to the basics, because really that's all I can do. I want to inspire, excite, and energize some of you out there who may need it. And this morning, I'm going to give you three reasons why we should all be excited about coming to church. And for those of you who have your copies of God's Word this morning, we're going to be looking at several passages of Scripture. We're going to be looking at each one individually throughout our time together. I know that's kind of a change in what y'all are used to. It's, um, uh, we, I'm not quite able to uh, just preach a whole sermon on just one passage of Scripture. But we'll be looking at three different passages, and those will be Hebrews chapter 10, verses 24 and 25. Psalm 95, verses 1 through 3. And Ephesians chapter 2 verses 8 and 9. So, without any further ado, I'm going to go ahead and get started this morning. And the first reason that we should all be excited about coming to church is that we are surrounded by a like-minded group of people who are pushing towards the same goals as we are. And the passage I want to examine for this point is Hebrews chapter, t- or chapter 10, verses 24 and 25. So if you all would find that in your Bibles with me, and then we will all read it. Hebrews 10, 24 and 25 reads, And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. There are several encouragements that we can take from this verse about being surrounded by a body of believers as the church. And the first thing is that just be encouraged in the fact that church is a place that you can come to be encouraged. The writer of Hebrews explicitly states in verse 25 that as members of the church, we should be encouraging one another. I like to think of our spiritual lives as diets, and church is simply a food group of our spiritual diet. It's a very important part of our relationship with God. Church is a place we can come to get nourishment if we have been struggling. Sin has been getting the best of you lately. You can come find many people at church who will encourage you and many people who have probably dealt with the same thing before. It's encouraging just to be surrounded in an environment where God is put first, an oasis from our daily lives where the world screams for us to conform to it, and a church is a shelter from the raging storm that our circumstances bring. 
But going back to the spiritual diet metaphor, we cannot live in church alone. Our church attendance cannot account for personal time spent in God's word every day. But it is a great place for learning and encouragement and a great place to be surrounded by other Christians. So we should be excited about that. Another thing we should be excited about being surrounded by a body of believers is that coming to church also inspires us to center and focus our lives more on God. Hebrews 19 verse 24, uh, or Hebrews chapter 10 verse 24, my fault, says that we consider, should consider how to stir up love and good works in one another. By coming to church, a place where we are surrounded by other believers, we should be awakening good deeds in one another. Now, I ran cross country for three years of my high school career. Now, please uh, don't come up to me after service and ask me about my times, because if you do, that probably means you're a runner yourself, and that also means that your 5K time is probably faster than mine, because I was not a very good uh, cross-country runner, but you know, I tried, and I gave my best effort, and I had fun with it. But I did learn one lesson in particular, because whenever we would go uh, to races, uh, everyone would be bunched up at the starting line, and there would be one big pack. And then the gun would fire, and it would mark the beginning of the race. And then everyone would start running, and, you know, the, the pack would kind of start to spread out and separate and elongate, almost to the point to where the entire race was run in the format of just a pack of runners, like one or two or three runners, and then a few feet of space, and then another one, two, or three runners. So it was almost like this long, stretched-out, single-file line. That's how most of the race was run. But one, the thing that I learned is that I always found it easier for me personally in my racing experience to catch up to someone and run with them. Because whenever I was running alone, all I could think about was how tired I was getting and how easy it would be just to stop and give up and walk. But when I was running with another runner, I would, we were kind of like, you know, pushing each other competitively and we were both focused on the same common goal and that was finishing the race. And this is very, uh, it translates very well to our Christian walks. If we walk alone, it's very easy to become beaten down and worn out by the world, almost to the point where you just want to give up and start walking and stop pursuing our goal of holiness completely. But if we find other runners to run with by coming to church, we can stir up love and good works in one another, as it says in Hebrews. And we can... Uh, we can stay focused on the ultimate goal of finishing our race and achieving our ultimate prize of eternity with Christ. But the great thing about church is, I mean, we're all on the same team here. We don't have to compete for one first place prize that only one person can have. We can all reach the goal of eternal life, and we should all help each other along by inspiring each other to become more like Christ. The final part of Hebrews 10, 24 to 25 says that we should be doing these things all the more as you see the day drawing near. And this is, of course, referring to that glorious day when Jesus Christ will return and set up his kingdom on earth. And as Pastor Scott's been teaching us uh, on his series on Revelation on Sunday mornings, this day may be coming sooner than we think. So we need to be doing all these things with a sense of urgency because Christ could come back any day. So um, all in all, we should just be excited about church because we can be surrounded by other believers who love and care about us. And the second reason this morning we should be excited about coming to church is that we have the opportunity to worship the creator of the universe. This is one of my favorite aspects about God. He allows us to experience joy while doing something that brings him glory. I love worshiping our father because it brings such a sense of joy to my heart. Take a look with me at Psalm 95, verses 1 through 3. 
It reads, O come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. For the Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods. Within this passage, several elements are revealed as to why we should be excited about worship. The first one of those is the object of our worship. I think it's pretty self-evident that anyone who's worshiping has to be worshiping something, right? I mean, you can't just worship nothing. That doesn't make much sense. Some people worship money, possessions, a relationship, a lifestyle, and some people even worship themselves. But as humans, we have been created to worship God our Father. This is very clear because the Bible instructs us in many different places at many different times to worship God. In Psalm 95, this instruction comes in the first verse where it says, O come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. By worshiping God, we are fulfilling part of the purpose of our human existence, and that is glorifying God. But my only caution is that we must remember to keep the focus on God whenever we worship Him. This issue has been particularly heavy on my heart lately, and I kind of like to pause here and issue a small challenge to everyone, to both, to particular my peers in the youth group and also those around my age. Um, as we can all tell, music is a constantly evolving and changing thing, and this also holds to, true for contemporary Christian music. I mean, I think we can all tell just by listening to the radio that the songs we hear today are far different than the hymns that you know, were written hundreds of years ago. Now, I like to call my generation the passion generation as far as music is concerned, alluding to the growing annual passion conferences in Atlanta, Georgia. For those of you who are unfamiliar with the passion conferences, uh, our church uh, college ministry takes a group every year, but it's a multi-day event geared towards college students um, where big-name speakers such as Louis Giglio, Francis Chan, and John Piper uh, prepare the next generation of Christian leaders by teaching God's Word and titans of contemporary Christian music such as Chris Tomlin, David Crowder, and Matt Redman all lead worship. And I call my generation uh, the passion generation because uh, my age group tends to like the high energy music produced by these passion artists and also artists similar to passion. I myself even subscribe to this new wave of worship music. I love the high energy, worshipful atmosphere that the songs create and choose to play many of them whenever I lead worship on Wednesday nights in the youth group. However, with such music, I also issue a caution. With modern music such as the Passion Songs, it's very easy just to get caught up in the high-energy, emotional atmosphere of the song and lose sight completely of God. I call this phenomenon worshiping the song. It's very easy to do. I even find myself doing it sometimes. So I'd like to challenge everyone today that no matter how you worship, just make sure it is God-centered and God-focused. Because as Psalm 95 says in verse 3, For the Lord our God is a great God and a great King above all gods. I mean, we worship God all-powerful, and He is far more worthy and deserving of our praise than any song is or anything else is. So we have to make sure that whenever we do worship Him, it's focused on Him. But it's an encouraging fact that we do worship such a powerful God, and that should excite us about worship. And the second thing about worship we should be excited about is our state of being while we worship. Um, God commands us to be joyful while we worship. You can see this displayed very plainly in Psalm 95, verse 2, which reads, Let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. There are two things I want to key in on this part of the verse. And the first thing is the word joyful. 
I mean, the writer of Psalms doesn't say here, let us make a depressed noise, or let us make a bland noise, or a boring noise. No. He says, let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. This is the beauty of worship. God allows us to be joyful while bringing him glory. Um, God could do to us as Nebuchadnezzar did to the Israelites whenever they were in the Babylonian captivity. He could just force us to, you know, bow down on the ground and worship him by force and, you know, compulsory. But God is a much more loving God than Nebuchadnezzar was a king. Um, he, he instead commands us to be joyful. Like, do you realize how much of a blessing that is for us? For those of you who feel restricted by the word commandment, you should be liberated in the fact that God commands us to be joyful while we worship him. I mean, it's such a privilege for us to worship him in the first place, but then for him to allow us to be joyful while we do it is such an awesome thought to me. This transitions into the other thing from Psalm 95, verse 2, that I want to key in on, and that's the exclamation point at the end of the verse. Now, why is a punctuation mark so important, some of you might wonder? Because it indicates how we should be whenever we worship God, and that is excited. One of the most depressing sights in the world to me is seeing someone do this. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I mean, come on, someone tell me I'm not the only one that sees something wrong with that picture. I mean, I'm not, I'm not trying to start up a debate about how expressive we should be during worship, but I at least think that the joy we feel in our hearts should carry over into our demeanor when we worship. I mean, I know it certainly does for me. Whenever I worship, I like to, you know, kind of move around, be loose, tap my feet to the beat of the music, and I like to smile because I'm excited about the joy that God has put into my heart. The, writer of, the writers of Psalms were worshiping God just by writing the Psalms. They are praises to God. And an exclamation point here indicates they were joyful while they worshipped. And we should share their enthusiasm. Now remember that singing is not the only way to worship. Worship is defined as bringing God the glory that he deserves. So really, we should live our entire lives as an act of worship to God. But when we worship corporately, such as here on Sunday mornings, it should be an exciting, refreshing, and energizing experience. And finally this morning, the third reason that we should be excited about coming to church is God's grace. This is the most exciting aspect about coming to church for me personally. This principle may seem elementary, this principle of grace, but that's exactly the point. This morning, I finally want to examine the reason why we meet together as a church, and that is God's grace. Take a look with me at Ephesians 2, 8 through 9 on this topic. It says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. There is one very specific aspect about grace that I think we should all be very excited about this morning, and that is that grace is a gift. Grace is defined as getting something that we don't deserve. I think we could all agree this morning that none of us deserve salvation, but God chooses to give it to us anyways. 
This is why Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2 that for grace you have been saved by faith. Paul kind of gives a breakdown of how salvation works right here. He says, uh, by grace, grace is the mechanism by which we are saved, is the gift of God, and then we achieve that grace uh, uh, through faith, believing in God. So by grace, the mechanism, we are saved through faith, how we achieve the grace. Ephesians also makes it clear that salvation is not a work of men. In verse 9, it says that grace is not a result of works. So Paul makes it very clear here that salvation is a gift, and there's nothing that we could do as humans to earn or deserve this gift. Now, I have an illustration I'd like to use to demonstrate this point this morning, but it's going to require a little class participation from all of you out in the audience. And when I say that, I mean the real reason behind this illustration is to make sure you're all still awake. (laughs) No, I'm just kidding, but if y'all could help me out here, that would be great. So... All right, I like to consider myself a pretty athletic kid, or at least a somewhat athletic kid. I guess that just depends on your uh, perspective. But um, I I ran track in middle school, and when I ran track, I kind of got to try my hand at all the events. And some of the events I did were were jumping, you know, the high jump, the long jump, the triple jump. And, um, well, let's just say I wasn't great at it. I mean, it kind of went how cross-country went for me, and that was not great. But... um, uh, I, you know, I, I, I like to think I held my own. I feel like I did all right. But I guess we'll find out how y'all think I can do here in just a second. Because I'd like to ask you, if we cleared off all this stuff back here, like moved all my friends and the youth back here, moved all the chairs and the instruments and the amps and the plants and the music stands and the pulpit, and we just cleared everything off, and I had a straight shot, a clear path from the baptistry back there, by a show of hands from all of you, how many think that I, with a, remember, with a running start from the baptistry, that I could jump from the edge of the stage right here down to the first step? Alrighty, alright, that's, that's encouraging to know that uh, most of you think that I can jump a net distance of a few feet with elevation and a running start on my side. So, yeah, that's a, that's a good confidence booster. But uh, let's, take it, let's take it a step further. Let's take, make things a little bit more interesting. How many of you think that with a running start from the baptistry, I could jump from the edge of the stage right here to about halfway between the first row of pews and the stage where I'm standing? Show of hands. All right, still a majority. That's good. All right, let's take it a step further. How many of you think that with a running start from the baptistry, I could jump from the edge of the stage to the first row of pews out here? All right, I see a few, a few hands start to go down, but you know what? That's okay. I'm all right with that. That's what I expected. As the distance from the stage, the point where I'm jumping to where I'm standing, increases, it becomes physically harder for me to make that jump, and therefore your confidence decreases. But like I said, that's all right. Uh, I was kind of expecting that. Let's take it another step further. How many of you think that with a running start from the baptistry, I could jump from the stage to the second row of pews out here? Oof. Ouch. That one hurts. <laughs> but like I said, uh, that's fine. I, that's, that's what I was expecting. Because as the distance increases, it becomes harder for me to make that jump. All right, now let's take it a big step further. How many of you think that with a running start from the back of the baptistry back here, I could jump from the stage to the back of the sanctuary doors? Like the very back. Anyone? Any takers? Oh, all right, okay, we got a few up here. That's, a, that's all right. But yeah, the majority of your hands went down. And uh, 
Those of you with your hands up, I think that you're either being silly, making an extreme attempt to flatter me, or you need to seek um, medical help. Because I would think that most of you would agree that it's just not humanly possible to jump from the stage all the way to the back of the sanctuary, right? I mean, no matter how much natural talent I had at jumping, and no matter how much I trained, my physical human limitations just would not allow me to jump from here to the back of the sanctuary. All right, now I have one final question for all of you. How many of you think that with a running start from the baptistry, I could jump from the edge of the stage right here to Denver? Yes, that's Denver, Colorado, not Denver, North Carolina. Yeah, um, any hands up now I think should just go straight for the medical help because uh, jumping, jumping to Denver, is, it's, it's out of the question, right? I mean, just me jumping, like physically like jumping from the edge of the stage to Denver, which is hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of miles away, I mean, it's, it's physically impossible. Well, like I said, it's out of the question. There is no way that I could physically jump to Denver by myself. Ladies and gentlemen, you do realize that's what Jesus Christ did for us, don't you? Jesus Christ made that jump to Denver for us. The gap between us and Denver, or us and God, literally speaking, was created by every single one of us whenever we first sinned. Um, and, uh, but you know what? As humans, in our sense of empowerment, and our sense of thinking that we can do everything, you know, we still try and jump from the stage just as far as we can. We still try to jump that gap. But, you know, some, some try and do it through good works, others through following the strict set of religious rules, others by trying to fulfill seven pillars, and still others by following an eightfold path. But in the end, every single human being on planet Earth comes up desperately, desperately short of Denver. I mean, we can't even make it to the back of the sanctuary on our own. I mean, ladies and gentlemen, do you realize how powerless and how helpless we are in our human state? We can't even make it to the back of the sanctuary, much less Denver. I mean, the Bible tells us in Isaiah that even our good works, our best works, even the ones that build God's kingdom, they are like dirty rags compared to a holy and perfect God. Our sinful state contaminates everything we do. And that gap between us and Denver is just as big, no matter how far we try to jump. But God, in his immeasurable grace, had a plan to fix this gap between us and himself. And that plan was Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ made the jump to Denver for us by, com by coming on the earth, living a sinless life, being guilty of nothing more than revealing his true identity, but yet he was still sentenced to die a brutal death on the cross. But you know what? Thank the Lord that he was, because on that cross, he took on all our sin, and he died and conquered death and paid the sin debt that we all deserve to pay for us. And I mean, was, was this easy for Jesus to do? Of course not. Jumping from here to Denver is impossible. I mean, forget easy. Just as paying our sin debt would be impossible for us to do on our own. And it was not easy for Jesus to do. The worst part of Jesus' crucifixion was not being beaten, mocked, spit upon. It wasn't having a 
crown of nine or inch long thorns literally driven into his skull. It wasn't being torn up, having his entire outer layer of flesh being torn apart and lacerated by a cat of nine tails. It wasn't carrying his one, approximately 110 pound crossbeam up a hill. It wasn't having nine inch nails driven through the palms of his hands. And it wasn't hanging upright on a cross until he died. No, the worst part of Jesus' crucifixion was him having to bear the weight of every sin that would be committed, that had been committed by humankind. I mean, take a second to think about this with me. You, you've got Jesus, and he's born. He's 100% man. He's 100% God. He's one with the Father. He lives a sinless life and, until the crucifixion, when all of a sudden every sin that has ever been committed comes down squarely on his shoulders. I mean, imagine how that must have felt for him. Jesus had never experienced sin at all. He was one with God. And then all of a sudden, he gets the entire weight of every sin that would be committed, and God, his Father, turns his back on him for the first time ever. Like, we can't even comprehend as humans what that must have been like, the emotional torment for that. I mean, I know, I know that, just think about the, the feeling that we get whenever we commit just one sin, about how guilty that makes us feel. It, has, it, it makes enough impact to, you know, change our entire day and make us feel really guilty. Now, take that and multiply it by infinity. And that's how Jesus felt. I know just the weight of my sin the sins I have committed and the sins I will commit would be enough punishment for Jesus. But you know, the beauty of everything is he didn't just come to save me and he didn't just come to save you or you or you or any of us in here. He came to save the entire world. So that's why he had to bear the sin of the entire world. And when Jesus finally did die, his side was pierced and blood and water flowed out. This was a very specific detail included in the Bible, and the inclusion of this detail leads many physicians to believe that Jesus' physical cause of death, now remember, he did physically die, so he had to have a physical cause of death. But anyways, it leads many physicians to believe that Jesus' physical cause of death was a ruptured heart. He didn't die from any of the countless other things that you could have died from with a Roman crucifixion. He didn't die from suffocation, from, you know, hanging up there, having to support himself until his lungs just gave out and he couldn't take a breath anymore. No, he didn't suffocate. He didn't die from blood loss that came with the scourging that was enough to kill many crucifixion victims alone before they even made it to the cross. No, that wasn't what did it. He didn't die from shock of all that pain and blood loss combined and his body didn't just shut down. No. That's not what happened. His heart literally burst from the stress of bearing all of our sin. He died of a broken heart for me and for all of you and for everyone in here. And ladies and gentlemen, the point I'm trying to make this morning by all this is not to intensify Jesus' death, even though, believe me, it has every right to be intensified. Jesus died one of the most gruesome physical deaths known to man, and that was just the physical side. We can't even comprehend or fathom the emotional or spiritual side of it. But no, we did that last week. That was what Easter was for. The point I'm trying to make is not to intensify Jesus' death. The point I'm trying to make here this morning is that God loves us. He loves us so much that he would rather sacrifice and turn his back on his own son than to spend eternity without one single one of us. Ladies and gentlemen, that is grace. That is getting something that we don't deserve. And that 
is something to get excited about. So my challenge here for all of you today is, are you excited about church? Do you enjoy the fellowship of others, worship God joyfully, and acknowledge his grace? Or do you simply see church as part of your weekly checklist, something to check off your Christian to-do list? I pray that we would all continue to give church attention as the important part of our spiritual lives that it is, and that we would attend it with more enthusiasm and excitement than we ever have before. Now I'm going to close this in prayer as Kevin makes his way to the stage for the invitation. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I just thank you for that sacrifice that you made for all of us, Lord. I thank you that you did make that jump to Denver for us, Father, so that we can have the opportunity to spend eternity with you, Lord. And I pray, Lord, that if there is one person in here this morning that does not realize what you've done for them and that needs a relationship with you, Father, I pray that you would work on their hearts and not let them leave here without taking care of that, Lord. I pray that you would bless the rest of the service and bless the time that we have together. For it's in your name, amen.